The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Future glory? Yes, yes, but also present triumph and assured to us by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the assurance and the security in that he who is the head of his body, he in whom all fullness dwelleth, was raised from the dead. We do not half understand or realize what a glorious fact the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead has been. The greatest act of God's power is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Present Triumph. The French remember their country's military victories whenever they see the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. But believers are reminded of spiritual victories far greater and more glorious when we consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He triumphed over death and the forces of evil and his people rejoice in certain hope of victory over sin and the grave. Do you walk closely with the Lord every day and enjoy a life of spiritual triumph in Him? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Present Triumph. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. How we thank thee for the privilege of declaring thy great riches to us in Christ Jesus. There are so many who have named thy name, and who yet walk in a poverty of life, when all thy riches are available for them. Wilt thou use the word in this day to teach triumph and victory to thy children, and to give a great desire to those who know thee not, that they too might be drawn to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now the hope of the believer is not only a hope that has to do with our inward life, but it also concerns what is here called our mortal bodies. The previous verse has assured us that Christ is dwelling in every believer and that though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of his righteousness. 
Our present text sets forth the fruit of that life in the body of sin which is ours. Our text is one of the many which contain all three persons of the Godhead in a single sentence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so inextricably bound together here that it's impossible to attempt any separation of functions or being in them. All of the Godhead was at work in our redemption, and all of the Godhead is concerned in the triumph of our living Christian life. And the reason for this concentration of divine forces is that the problem within our mortal bodies is none other than the great need of bringing life out of death. We saw earlier, when we were studying chapter 4 and verse 18, that belief in the fact that God is able to bring life out of death is the essential element of faith. It was when Abraham believed that God was able to bring life out of his body, which he knew to be sterile, that the Lord counted faith unto him for righteousness. The exhibition of God's power in this respect is shown throughout all his dealings. He brought life out of the chaos of the first judgment upon the earth. Above all, he brought resurrection life out of the grave of Christ. When we were born again, it was the manifestation of this same power. Out of the death of our sin came the life of the new creation in Christ Jesus. Now it's the same question that's before us once more. But this time, it's the manifestation of the power of God to bring a continuing life out of the horrible death that is our living body of sin. There is here in this text nothing short of the question of the triumph of the believer in moment by moment living the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now once more we must understand that the if which is here is not followed by the subjunctive which would imply doubt, but both the conditional and the principal clauses are in the indicative. The fact is accepted. The spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us who are believers. The fact of the indwelling Christ is the guarantee that all of the power which was put forth in raising Jesus from the dead is now available to keep down the power of death that is in us by nature and to keep victorious the life that is the very life of Christ in his resurrection. There are several important lessons here. First, the name of the Holy Spirit is given as the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit is therefore presented to us as the spirit of resurrection life. This links him with the truth that is presented in the second verse of this chapter, where we read that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. God is multiplying every means of expression to bring to us the wonder of the life that is now ours and to help us to see how infinite and eternal that life and power are for us. We know that the Holy Spirit is within us and that our bodies have become his temple. We have not been granted some idle power or decrepit might. The one who dwells in us is none other than the Spirit of the Heavenly Father, the Almighty God, who raised up Jesus from the dead. Again, in the second place, we should notice that the names of our Lord are very carefully presented to us in two ways. The name of Jesus is that which was given to him in birth. It might be said that this is his personal name. Mary was told, thou shalt call his name Jesus. It is much more the name of his humanity 
than of anything else. Though there are verses which speak of the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, the use of the name Jesus as the one who was raised from the dead calls our attention to his life on the far side of the cross. Then he was in the days of his flesh. Then he was in weakness, humility, and death. But God raised him from the dead. Immediately he has a new name. He is no longer Jesus merely, but Christ Jesus. He is never called thus until after the resurrection. The order of the names here, therefore, calls us to realize that God raised him from the dead at a time when all of the powers of ecclesiasticism were set against him, when all the power of the Roman Empire was set against him, when all the power of Satan was set against him. Yet we're able to sing, Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away, Jesus, my Lord. Now if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us, how can he be other than he was when he brought to pass his greatest triumph? Shall not the greater contain the lesser? Shall not the triumph of resurrection in the body of Jesus ensure the triumph of resurrection in our bodies? For it is our mortal bodies that now come under discussion. And this third point brings us to the center of our text. We have long seen that our spirits have been made alive in Christ. Even when we were dead through our sin, we were made alive spiritually together with Christ. But in spite of the fact that these bodies are decaying, dying things, they are to know the touch of the Holy Spirit of God even now. Newell has missed the point when he applies this message to our future resurrection. That we shall see at some length a few verses farther along in this eighth chapter. Newell writes, Now God announces that to these bodies, so dead to God, to holiness and heaven, it is by and by to be given life. So that although our bodies are yet dead on account of sin, dead to God, the spirit of him who raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, Christ Jesus, in whom we now are, this God will give life also to these poor mortal bodies of ours. Now, all of that is blessedly true, but it should not be deduced from our present text. The sight of the full moon, though no more than a dead world and a tiny satellite, serves to dim out vast suns which lie around it in the starry heavens. And the thought of some very great truth sometimes dims other truths that lie so near to the greater light that we fail to see them. Our bodies shall be raised from the dead. Thank God this is true. But our present text is teaching that there is power today and resurrection life for us now, even though we are living in mortal bodies. Calvin puts it, we conclude that he speaks not of the last resurrection, which shall be in a moment, but of the continued working of the Spirit, by which he gradually mortifies the relics of the flesh and renews in us a celestial life. It is in this sense that the paraphrase of Philip's translates our text. Nevertheless, once the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you, that same Spirit shall bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. Now that is admittedly a paraphrase and has serious faults as a translation, but the thought is clearly set forth that the resurrection life of Christ is now to be lived within our mortal bodies, 
and that there is definitely something for us to learn in connection with bodily victory, that this is not to be construed as relating to so-called divine healing, will become evident when we consider the groaning and travailing creation and the future redemption of our bodies in verse 23. Now let us not then read our text and cry out, what a future lies before us. Let us rather read our text and say, what a wonderful present is now to be ours. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I am living resurrection life now. I am living eternal life now. Perhaps some poor child of God lies on a bed of sickness even after years of suffering, which has been declared incurable. There is seemingly no hope of any intervention on behalf of the physical body of such a child of God. They are doomed, as it would be put in human words, to spend more years of suffering before they shall have physical release in death. Or, as it should be put in spiritual language, they are chosen to exhibit the grace and power of God before a judged world, even though that exhibition is in the midst of the greatest physical suffering, unmitigated by any ray of present hope and without any promises of relief to which the sufferer might turn. It shall again be seen later that it is in the midst of all these sufferings that we are found to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. But when we reach that point in our study in the 37th verse in this chapter, we shall be in the fruit-bearing branches of the truth that is rooted in our present text. Future glory? Yes, yes, but also present triumph and assured to us by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rainsford says, We have the assurance and the security in that he who is the head of his body, he in whom all fullness dwelleth, was raised from the dead. Brethren, we do not half understand or realize or enter into what a glorious fact the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead has been, the greatest act of God's power that has ever been effected, or that probably ever shall be recorded, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. All salvation hangs upon it. Remember the circumstances under which he died and was buried, and then endeavor to grasp something of the wonderful nature of his resurrection. All the sins of all his people were laid upon him. They crushed him down. Every attribute of the eternal God demanded satisfaction for sin. Justice put its seal to the tomb of Christ, and truth itself, and holiness, and almighty power forbade his resurrection. Until the law was indeed fulfilled, sin put away, eternal righteousness brought in, and sinners saved. It was from beneath that tremendous load that the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead and was declared and manifested to be the Son of God and the salvation of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. But his mystical body rose when the head was raised. And in that resurrection there is victory and power for us even now in spite of the fact that we are living in mortal bodies. Life has come within them. This dying sheath covers that which shall live forever. And in the midst of death, we are truly in life. This is why the invalid can rest in joyous hope in the midst of the most dire suffering. This is why the incurable can rest 
in enduring patience, even though there is no human way out. The bodies are mortal, but that which dwells within the body is life. And the certain presence of this life must have its result, and that result is triumph, and that triumph is, by this promise, assured. It is a grand concept and one that is worthy of God. The sphere of the victory of life is to be in the midst of death. It is as though he announced that a feather would lie quiet and still in the midst of a howling gale. It is as though he announced that a naked man would have warmth and comfort in the Arctic regions. It is as though he announced that a soldier would sleep quietly in the midst of violent bombardment. It is the framework of this picture which gives such value to the canvas. For it is within our mortal bodies that the triumph is to take place. We have already seen this word once and discussed it briefly when we were studying the sixth chapter. The word means subject to death and so still living. There is quite another word for the dead body. Beside the two times the word is found in Romans, it occurs twice in the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, where it is promised that these mortal bodies, subject to death, shall put on immortality at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in 2 Corinthians that our word is used in a way that brings out forcibly the spiritual meaning of our text. Paul describes the conflicts of the Christian life and says flatly, that all of our triumphs take place in mortal bodies. After describing the revelation of the glory of God, which has shined in our hearts, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may also be manifested to our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul was speaking of all of the conflicts which he had had to undergo in his life for the Lord and for the gospel and for his hearers. He took the illustrations out of his own life, but it would be just as true to vary them for the life of any individual. You may make up a list of all the strife that ever enters your life and break it down into whatever categories you wish. When you have done, you may look over the whole list and say, all of this has befallen me in order that the world might see that God is performing a miracle moment by moment in sustaining me in the midst of all these troubles. Sweet water is to flow from a well that has been analyzed as poisonous. Light is to stream from a dark cavern. As Moses struck the rock and saw the great stream gush forth, sufficient for the supply of two million people, so from our hearts, a flint harder than any struck by Moses, the Lord makes known his presence by the flowing stream. This truth must exasperate Satan beyond measure. Every time a believer in Christ is able to lay hold upon the power of God and have even a moment of victory, it's a bitter thing for the devil. For every such experience is an illustration to him of the truth of God and of the futility of any will that is not the divine will. Dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life, 
was the thundering judgment of God when Satan had sinned. And dust shall be the serpent's meat is the prophecy confirmed by Isaiah upon all the efforts of Satan. Look back for a moment and see some examples of this frustrating shame. Lucifer pressed his feet against this earth, glorious in its first creation, and cried out, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt. I will be like the Most High God. And the earth became a chaotic spark. God did not create it a chaos. One of the better translations of the late revision is that of Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it a chaos. And Lucifer, who had reached out to grasp heaven, discovered that the earth, which was his only rightful principality, had become mere dust. Coming down through history, we discover the hatred of Satan manifested against the Lord Jesus Christ. With all his power, he strikes against the Lord. And while all that was happening was within the framework of that which had been planned by God, nevertheless, Satan struck through men to seek the destruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that body of the Savior, like ours made of the elements of the earth, was put to death. But that earthen body, broken for us, becomes the very symbol of the eternal defeat of Satan. And it is at Calvary that the Lord made a spectacle of him openly and disarmed all the principalities and powers. I think, too, of the empty tomb and the effect it must have had upon the mentality of Satan. There lies that open grave, its exact location perhaps unknown to man, but its results known to the universe. There is a hole with the stone rolled away, and the erosion of the centuries has undoubtedly brought changes in the form of its dust. But that dust, which is the glory of every believer and the triumphant cry of every angel, is the meat of Satan and the symbol of his eternal defeat. And this brings us back to our text and the declaration of God that he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and that it is his own spirit who is dwelling in us to give life within our mortal bodies. Think of it. What was this body and what has this body become? The throat was an open grave. The tongues were instruments of deceit. The poison of asps was under our lips. Our mouth was full of curses and bitterness. Our feet were swift to shed blood. Our track was marked by destruction and misery. And there was no fear of God before our eyes. Can even God do anything with such an anatomy of corruption? And our text cries out that the purpose of God is a daily transformation in these very bodies of death. This dust forms the walls of the temple of the Holy Spirit. This clay makes the platform for the exercise of God's glory. This throat, once a grave, has now become a flowing fountain. This tongue, which once used deceit, now speaks the truth in love. Under these lips, where once poison was stored, lies the refreshing spring of the grace of God. The cursing and bitterness of this mouth have been banished by songs of praise and the sweetness of gratitude. These feet, once swift to shed blood, are now swift to proclaim the glories that flow from the blood of the Redeemer. 
as we move about preaching the gospel, salvation and peace mark our ways. We know no other way than that way of peace, and before our eyes there is the loving fear of God. Eat that dust, eat that dust, O Satan. We now are the proof of Christ's own prophecy. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, and now that the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us, we have the fountain of life springing up, even in the midst of these mortal bodies, all of God's treasure in these earthen vessels. And surely the excellency of this transcendent power is of God and not of us. And Lord, we thank thee for these great truths, and we ask thee that in this hour thou shalt take them in spite of the weakness of man, shall take these truths to hearts and use them to thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells within every believer in Christ. Even while we live in these mortal bodies, the Holy Spirit springs forth as a fountain of life. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Present Triumph. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime via the Internet by visiting us at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Present Triumph or simply request message number R8-16. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled How God Saves Men. A Latin poet once said that there were as many opinions as there were men. You can find a wide variety of ideas about salvation even among Christians. This free booklet clears up the confusion by setting forth God's Word about how He saves people. You will understand God's grace, love, and power in salvation as you read about faith. God's part in salvation, how God does not save men, and God's workmanship. Ask for your free copy of How God Saves Men when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.